and welcome back to Slightly Foxed and to our quarterly podcast. Summer now, and with our thoughts turning to foreign travels, Foxed editor Gail Perkis has chosen a fitting adventurer and influential travel writer for today's episode. He's a man once described as a cross between Graham Greene, James Bond and Indiana Jones, though we do feel that Byron might be a better comparison. His writing life sprang from an odyssey that he made on foot in 1933 from the Hook of Holland to the city he still rather romantically called Constantinople. Patrick, or Paddy Lee Fermer, was just 18 when he set out on that journey, and we have two guests with us to talk about his life and work, one of whom knew him for years and wrote his biography. The other recreated that famous journey again on foot 80 years later. We'll meet them both in a moment. Sitting here with me, though, Gail Perkis and fellow Fox Stephanie Allen. Hello, how's things? Hi. Hello. Yeah, it's good. Nice to be back. What news from Slightly Foxed? Well, we've got the autumn issue and two autumn books at the printers. Great relief. So we're reissuing Nella Last's diaries, wartime diaries, yeah. which are rather wonderful. And we're also reissuing Graham Greene's A Sort of Life, which we originally did as a Slightly Foxed edition a long time ago, and it sold out. So we're now doing it in a plain Foxed edition. Nella Last, I remember reading that when it yeah, first came out. It's, it's fantastic. It is, it is great, yeah. Yes, and we're also looking forward to some outside events again. We are launching our autumn issue at Topping & Co in Bath on Tuesday 20th of September, which will be great to get back in an independent bookshop. Yes. And then, I know it's a way off, but we have our Reader's Day on the 5th of November. Expect fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is the annual event which sells out literally like hotcakes, mm-hmm. doesn't it? We had such a good lineup last year. We had Michael Palin, so we are going to have to match that. Yeah. Pressure is on. You're looking <laughs> mysterious. I feel like you've got something in your sleeve. Exciting. Um, I'm happy to say uh, we are indeed recording this episode of the podcast at the Slightly Foxed offices in leafy Hoxton Square in East London. I cannot tell you how joyous it is to have everyone around the uh, kitchen table again. The very table where we decided to launch the podcast and the table where we've recorded most of the 41 episodes to date. Let's meet our guests, Artemis Cooper and Nick Hunt. Thanks so much for coming in. Hello. Great pleasure. pleasure to be here. Now, Artemis, as I mentioned, you're Lee Firmer's biographer, aren't you? How, how did that come about? It came about because my husband, Anthony Beaver, wrote a book called Crete, The Battle and the Resistance, and Paddy was hugely helpful about that. And before that, I'd done a book about Cairo and the Second World War, and again, he'd been wonderful about this, so he knew both of us. And then Anthony wrote him a letter saying, I'd love to write your biography. And this was followed by a thundering silence. And obviously, Paddy wasn't remotely interested in this. And by the time he was sort of, or rather his wife, had twisted his arm sufficiently to accept (laughs) the idea, Anthony was already moving on to other things. And he said, why doesn't Artemis do it? And I think Paddy was actually much more comfortable with the idea of a woman doing his biography. Okay. Especially as he used to call Anthony Deadline Dick because Anthony's never missed a deadline and okay. Paddy's never actually hit one. And so, <laughs> Bit of a cultural difference there. Yeah. You, you'd also known him as a child, Artemis, is that right? Yes, not only that. I think there's a letter saying, I'm at Chantilly and little Artemis is in her pram looking like a Cox's orange pippin. Oh, I wow. don't know whether that was a, a, a compliment or not. <laughs> and I don't think he ever guessed that, you know, one day this... Little Knight would write his biography. It's rather amazing, isn't it? It is. And so I knew him as one of the group of glamorous, beautiful people around my grandmother who always made me feel rather sort of grey and mousy. And this is Diana Cooper? Yeah. As you say, a great beauty. A great beauty. And she and Paddy absolutely adored each other. 
Fascinating. I think you had to do it, really, didn't you? Sort of did, yeah. <laughs> Nick, you read Paddy's books, I think, didn't you? Was it, was it as a teenager? It was as uh, I was 18 when I read Time of Gifts and Between the Woods and the Water. And fell for them. Yeah, yeah, I did. Maybe in spite of the quite kind of archaic interests that he pursues in kind of Baroque architecture and the noble bloodlines of Europe's great families. <laughs> but at the heart of this kind of all his other fascinations, I just found the spirit of adventure was completely compelling. Is that what it was? It was. And, you know, he was 18 when he started his great trudge to Istanbul. I was 18 when I read the books. And even though, I'll probably get into this, he wrote the books much later, he preserves that youthful spirit of kind of daring do. That's what I wanted. I wanted to do something with as much panache as he did. Yeah, which indeed you did. But, I mean, ask us, tell us, tell us a little bit about Paddy's early life and how he came to set out on this walk at the tender age of 18. Well, I think his parents, it was not a happy marriage at all. Paddy once said to me, I don't know what those two were even doing in each other's company, let alone getting married. Okay. So he was sent to these people in Northamptonshire called the Martins. And for the first four years of his life, he was like a little sort of Peter Pan. I mean, he describes this as the most idyllic childhood. These people were incredibly kind. And he was just allowed to run wild. And then his mother comes back to England. And of course, when now he's about four, he has to go back with her to London. He loathes London. He's got to go to school. He's suddenly disciplined. And all this was very difficult for him. He was a tearaway, a very turbulent child. And he was a disaster at school, got sacked from one school after another for bad behaviour, not paying attention, you know, the usual litany. And finally, he gets to the King's School, Canterbury, where actually they begin to understand him a bit. At the end of that, he just manages to scrape his school certificate. But he's got no idea what to do except that he wants to write. And he's got his allowance, which his father says is going to last till he's 21. So he decides on that allowance, £4 a month, He's going to walk across Europe. And this is a case of running away big time from all your problems, as people do, aged 18. There's a wonderful passage, isn't there, where he describes what he takes in his rucksack. Yes, it's very odd. I think it was a book of Horace, one or two books, the Oxford Book of English Verse, a pair of gym shoes, a pair of smart flannel trousers, a jacket, pretty much it, toothbrush. Hobnail boots. Hobnail boots, yes. And the rucksack itself had belonged to, was it David Talbot Rice, who had gone to Greece with Robert Byron with that rucksack. So it was a talismanic rucksack mm. too. So, I mean, Nick, as I said, you were, you were more than just inspired by Paddy's books. You decided to do this walk in his footsteps. It's nearly 80 years later. I can see how it's a nice idea, but why did you actually do it? It was one of those things that when I was 18, I put in my head and I said, one day, that's what I want to do. And, you know, when you're 18, that one day is a kind of wonderfully sort of stretchy time. Sure. And it was 12 years later, around my 30th birthday. And I guess you do sort of take stock of things at these so birthday times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, I can see that this might be something I don't do now. And what I did, and I'd recommend this tactic to anyone that wants to do something but doesn't know how to do it, tell 10 people you're going to do it. Yes, then you have to. And I gave myself a year. Yeah. I said, in a year's time, on the 11th of December, that's what I'm going to do. And then I knew that there'd be 10 people nagging me to do this thing. The humiliation burden of not doing it. Yeah. Now, I mean, it should be said at this point, you know, Paddy had some very, very ritzy contacts, didn't he? Well, he started out with one letter, didn't he? But it took him into some very lovely places in due course. It did. Um, That one letter, which was actually written for him by a friend of his landlady in London, 
when he got to see this baron in his beautiful castle, the baron was absolutely enchanted with him. And the baron sat down and wrote a whole lot of letters to his friends. And they passed Paddy along, as he put it, you know, like a parcel. Because he was an entertaining guest, wasn't he? He, he was, sang for but supper. He, yes, but not Literally. only that. Nick has mentioned his fascination with these great families of Europe. And I think Paddy saw that as sort of part of history. There was this person who could actually trace their line back like a chain. It, mm. Yeah. And so at that time, all these grandees living in these old castles were being told by their children and grandchildren, you really are a relic, you are a dinosaur, you know, the world's changing, all these empires have now gone. And suddenly here was this young man who wanted to know what the songs were that your nurse sang as a child and wanted to know all about the family, every one of those dusty portraits going up the yeah. stairs he had to hear about. Mm. Suddenly, they're in the middle of history again. Yeah, very rather, rather than some sort of dingy backwater waiting to be and given what, what was to happen a few years later yes. when the Second World War came along and then communism swept through Eastern Europe, that was the kind of the last chance they had to tell those stories, a lot Absolutely. of those people, I'm sure. So, Nick, um, you stayed in castles? I did. I stayed in ruined castles. <laughs> <laughs> My first experience of sleeping out was down the Rhine. There's a whole stretch of kind of wonderfully gothic ruins that I found. One of the things I decided to do was set out in winter, the same date that he set out on, to try to sort of emulate the same conditions. Uh, yeah, and experience the places at the same time of year. What, what did you put in your rucksack? I had a sleeping bag. I had a bivy bag. Yeah. Um, a bunch of clothes. I didn't have a stove. I had Paddy's books. And some notebooks of my own. No Latin. No Latin. No, no. no. Just thought I'd check. Didn't know and don't know a word. Did you take a phone? I did take a phone. Mm. And I was always kind of in this negotiation. I wasn't trying to imitate what he did because I live in a time where there's technology. But I didn't want to over plan and over prepare. I didn't have a GPS. I wanted to be surprised by things. So I deliberately didn't do a lot of research about what I was going to see in each of the places that I knew I was passing through. But I did look up Google Maps overnight. But mostly I found my way through asking questions. Mm. News of your walk did seem to spread because you met some descendants, didn't you? Well, I met a descendant by accident. So news did kind of filter out through what I found was a kind of paddy grapevine of appreciators of his writing that kind of stretched across Europe. The incident you're talking about was fascinating and that was not until I got to Romania and I got uh, an email from someone who just wanted to meet me, a woman called Iliana, and she said, I'll, I'll drive to meet you, at, you know, meet you in this village, at this church, at this time. And I knew she was coming from Bucharest, which was a drive of like seven or eight hours. So I sort of guessed there was something up. I didn't quite know who she was or what she wanted. And it turned out she was a relative of Count Teleki, who was one of the kind of big characters of Between the Woods and the Water. Paddy stayed with him for quite a long time and fell into this life of balls and parties and long cultured conversations and hunting parties. You know, it was all there, this kind of romantic life. Now, she had grown up without any knowledge of who her family were because of communism through Ceausescu period. Right. And then when the regime fell, she found out that she had this kind of family heritage. This great house, Kaponash it was called, was now, um, it had been appropriated by the state and was being used as a, as a mental health hospital. Mm. And her family had kind of got a strange deal where they still owned it technically, but they couldn't use it. So they had a room that she said I could stay at. So we stayed at this, the kind of relic of what Paddy had stayed in and now... You know, there were kind of people in dressing gowns shambling through the corridors. There were stray dogs in the bathrooms. You know, it was bizarre. It must have been a so functioning strange. hospital, but really yeah. kind of decrepit. 
but also overgrown and, and crumbling, but it was quite a kind place to be. So yeah, that was the descendant that I met, kind of by chance. echoes. Echoes, yes. exactly. Time, yes. I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, obviously so much must have been unrecognisably different. I was going to ask you what was still the same. Obviously, that was, in a way. What else was there that you found? Yeah, it's a huge... I mean, that was the kind of question that, that drove me, really. It was just, I wanted to know what had changed. There's a line in A Time of Gifts that really haunted me. A character he just calls the polymath, um, who he met in a village called Persenberg on the Danube, who said, everything is going to vanish. They talk of building power dams across the Danube, and I tremble whenever I think of it. They'll make the wildest river in Europe as tame as a municipal waterworks. All those fish from the east... They would never come back. Never, never, never. And that sort of never, never, never was like an echo that I wanted to explore. And it was, you know, it was complicated. A lot has changed, a lot has stayed the same. Names had moved. As I approached Hungary, it was quite hard to piece together where he'd gone because he'd known the villages by their Hungarian names. And now they'd been Slovakianized, so they were, they were Slovak names when I walked through. Roads had changed, obviously. Country lanes that he would have walked down were, were now you know, highways. A lot more concrete, a lot more industry. But as I got further east, things started to look more the same. And by the time I got to Romania, Transylvania in particular, it was one of the paradoxes that this society that experienced an absolutely traumatic shift under very brutal state communism... But somehow, despite these kind of huge changes and the liquidation of the aristocracy, the peasantry was still there. And the same people he'd seen working in the fields and slaughtering their own pigs and baking their own bread, descendants of medieval Germans who had ended up in Transylvania, that was all still intact. Mm. I mean, we haven't actually established, what was the route he took? Well, he was basically following the Rhine and the Danube, but obviously he went off-piste when he felt like it. At one point he went to Prague, which is on neither. I did want to just make the point at this stage that he didn't actually write about this journey until decades later, did he? So was it 1977? No. Why was that? Well, I think the thing was that when he arrived in Constantinople, he had a lot of notebooks and he'd been keeping notes all the time. But I don't think he was very satisfied with them. I mean, he wanted to write like Robert Barron and, and, you know, he was very young and he was writing more kind of what I did in my holidays, I say. So he was dissatisfied and every time he tried to write, it didn't sound right. But you can imagine, aged 18, you're you're very young, you know, and you haven't yet got that authorial voice. So he was dissatisfied and so he doesn't, all that time, the year, much of the summer of 1934, he's being passed from one grand Hungarian house to the next. He's not writing then. So when he wrote that second book, it's completely out of pure memory. And coming back to the time of gifts, I think he'd been thinking about this for a long, long time. And then Holiday magazine said, we want you to write a piece about the pleasures of walking. So he thought, right, 2,000 words. Yeah, I could do that. I can shove this journey that lasted over a year. <laughs> Condense it all words. into 2,000 yeah, words. Off we go. So he started to write, but obviously he found he kept compressing and compressing and compressing, and he wasn't saying any of the things that he really wanted to say. And at a given point, it just sort of exploded, and he says it was like leaping out of a straitjacket. And so, well, one thing is that the polymath was an invented character, one of the people who he invents in order to sort of put things. So that never, never, never is Paddy. (laughs) Uh, So the people at Holiday magazine never really got their article. 
But he began writing this book. A Time of Gifts. A Time of Gifts. And that was in the early 1960s. Then in 1965, Romania is opening up. And he decides he's going to use this opportunity to see Balasha Kontakuzen. And we'll come to her. And we'll come to her in a moment. But she's been living in Romania. Her family estate has been confiscated. That was in the 1940s. She and her family are living in a tiny attic in a little town. And he decides to go and visit her. And while he visits her, she gives him back the one notebook that survived, that he left behind. He's Ah. lost all the others. And that notebook was an albatross around his neck. I wish he was spared the pain that those three books had given him. But actually losing the first four notebooks was the best thing that ever happened to him because the notebook put him right back as who he was at 18, not the scholar gypsy that he turned himself into. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because as you say, when he was a young man, he didn't have the maturity to write the books. Mm -hmm. And when he was an older man, recapturing that, youthful voice which he does so brilliantly yeah. that very i mean exactly what nick was saying a real challenge boyish you'd think wouldn't you he does but he, occasionally he'll pull back and say well, i didn't know it then but yeah. or there'll be a digression or there'll be a character like the polymath who he has to insert to say things mm. that he could never have known yes. aged 18 mm. but and it's so it's a book about memory it, as much as it is about the journey yeah and it spoke to you as an 18 year old to an 18 year old when you read it it did i think uh, an early idea for a title that he had was Parallax, which is something, as I understand it, that's seen from two different angles at the same time. So he had the youthful Paddy and the older scholar Paddy. And the wonder of the book is that these things, it's like a palimpsest, one thing laid on top of another, these two layers. Now you did not do this. You kept notebooks and you wrote the book. Was it pretty well straight away? It was soon after. Yeah, it's it's a very different type of book. But one of the things that was fascinating during the walk that we've kind of alluded to is the points which he his imagination he had to insert something with that kind of viewpoint of the older man looking back yeah there were some incidents on the way where you know it just didn't make and actually that bit with the with the polymath in Persenberg the place he describes meeting him I searched around for in a couple of hours in quite a small village and I just couldn't line up the view he'd had with what I was seeing. There were several instances like that where it was like a kind of hole in his narrative and I don't mean that in a disparaging way but it wasn't strictly factual yeah, and that's I mean, the, one of the fascinating things about there, travel writing There was anyway. always speculation was there about the, the truth of some of Paddy's stories would it be fair to no, say? I think I mean, that's I absolutely right but then I, I think um, Jonathan Rabin had a very very good quote where he says the journey itself is just a series of events usually one damn thing after another and he says those events are just like bits of wool on a barbed wire fence you've got to take out those bits of wool and weave them into the fiction of the book Uh and fiction is exactly right and Paddy was fictionalising and and people used to accost him as if every word of this should be true but I mean for example whether it's the young Nazis he says I had several conversations which I'm going to condense into one so there you can tell the horse uh, that he rides across the great Hungarian plain supposedly in between the woods and the water now there are two differing accounts of how he got the horse and I said well which one is it (laughs) and he said well actually I didn't have a horse 
he said <laughs> no horse at all no, it's no not horse. even a composite horse no. uh, but well he was a very good horseman he right. had ridden a lot but he said I just thought everybody would get so bored of me just trudging along so I thought if I put myself on a horse it might make things more interesting <laughs> yeah, I, I wished I had a horse so much yeah. on that bit no it's, it's good knowing that he didn't have one either he didn't actually horse. ride a horse Nick. No. I don't know if this is interesting at all but I experienced something similar I can see how these kind of confabulations happened just a small example in my walk I got to the border between Hungary and Romania and was about to cross into Romania and for various reasons which I won't go into now I went back to Budapest on the train stayed there a couple more weeks then got the train back to where I got on the train and then crossed the border I can't remember that now because that's not how I wrote it. Okay. I, I thought the reader yeah, doesn't so want to good. go back to Budapest no, now. Yes. So you conflated yeah. it They're all. They're done with it and yeah. I conflated it. Yeah. But actually I can't. Now when I think about it, I remember the journey that I wrote down, not the journey that I actually did. Interesting. What I loved about reading Nick's book was, first of all, the fact that he simply couldn't care less about the great houses of Europe mm-hmm. and the, you know and you were just doing it for the walk but also do you remember Nick how you'd got in touch with me saying can I just have the itinerary that Bulgarian the broken bit. road wasn't published the broken yet. road wasn't published yet and Nick was sending back this fabulous blog with photographs and what I found so staggering was the landscape was so often very much what Paddy described and you taught me things I had never realized Well, it's funny because I didn't know and still don't know as much about Paddy as you, obviously, about the rest of his life outside that walk. Really, it was those two books, Time of Gifts, Between the Woods and the Water, that I was doing, not his life. And I was always kind of very aware that I didn't want to come across as a pale imitation of someone else. And I talked about this before, the kind of tricky relationship between faithfully recreating something Mm. and doing it in my own way. But really, when I decided to do this I had no idea that he was a famous writer you know I didn't know it. many other people that had read him wasn't in travel writing circles at all how so did you come across know. the books I think my mum gave it to me right. she yeah I loved reading read a lot read in a sort of magpie like fashion so really this book came to me kind of out of nowhere I didn't know the war story I didn't know the kind of big points of his life I just knew that he'd done this mm-hmm. this journey what was it the walk or the style of writing that really caught you because his style is so different it is different Mm. and it is dense and it is difficult at times Um, but I was a big fan of Gormenghast and there was something in the (laughs) density of the language Mm. and the intricacy of the language and the fascination with crumbling crumbling castles (laughs) (laughs) crumbling castles (laughs) yeah but it was really there was the, the fascination with has all this been lost has has Europe changed will I still recognize anything of this I mean, as Artemis said, when Paddy got to Constantinople, it was a bit of a, okay, now what moment? Have I really, am I, has anything changed? How did you feel when you got there? Well, it's interesting because obviously I got to Const- uh, Constantinople. Yes, I, I called it Istanbul. <laughs> the Turks have had it for 500 years. Sure. You know, they kind of earned their name by now. The um, Broken Road hadn't been published when this I reached Istanbul. This is the third Istanbul. book in Paddy's trilogy. Yeah. So I didn't know what he'd seen all through Bulgaria. I didn't have his words to guide me, just the itinerary that Artemis kindly shared with me, but I had to kind of guess, what would he have been interested in here? What that would must he be have quite an been drawn process to? doing that. Yes. Well, by yeah. that time, I sort of knew him well enough to know that he would definitely have gone to Rila Monastery yeah. in Bulgaria. No way he would have not gone yeah. there, yeah. and he did. Yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. <laughs> But 
I was I was kind of interested to read when I finally got around to reading The Broken Road and his impressions of Istanbul. And of course, The Broken Road was not finished and it's notes. It's like reading someone's postcard scrolls. It's just like, mm-hmm. saw a mosque, went to a market. Yeah. There yeah. were lots of cats. There's okay, just these kind it. of little, yeah, there's nothing. Yeah, we should, we should explain about The Broken Road. Because, yes, um, absolutely. Steph and I, uh, he was uh, always published by Murray's and Steph and I, joined Murray's after Time of Gifts and Between the Woods and the Water had been published and they had been a tremendous success. And for the next, well, for the rest of our careers there, the big question was always, when is Paddy going to write the third one? I can remember Jock Murray, you know, I mean, obviously (laughs) longing for it, but it never happened. And the last book that Paddy wrote and that Murray's published was called Three Letters from the Andes. She came out in 1991. And he went on a trip to Peru with five other people and wrote these three letters to his wife. And they climbed mountains and they went through jungle and they went to all the Inca sites. And But in the blurb to the book, it says, Patrick Lee has taken a breather, brackets, hopefully a short one, <laughs> from recording his journey to Constantinople. It's a, and it's a publisher's nudge, is it? Yeah. And I think when I joined Murray's pre-email, we used to have probably two, three calls a week asking when the next Well, understandably, if, re- yes, if anyone reads yes. the first two, they will understand why you've been and, standing and for the third. And people were tremendously excited when they heard that we were actually going to do another Patrick Lee Firma book, which was Three Letters from the Andes, and we had to say to people, no, 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 this it's not the book. <laughs> this is just the stopgap, because the next one will come out soon. Yes. But in the event? Oh. No, it didn't. So after tell, tra- us, tell us about... The tragedy is, it was already written. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, it was already written. It had been written in 1962. The whole thing, pretty well. When I talked about the, the pleasures of walking, that article, which had exploded into a book, then he found the notebook. He begins the pleasure of walking, all the bit from all the way across Germany, Austria, Hungary, that's all condensed and doesn't sound very good. And then he gets out of the straitjacket, like that, and he's on the border of Romania and Bulgaria. It's 1962, it's 1934 or whatever in the book, but he's writing in 1962. And all this stuff comes out. And it's coming out very, very easily. And it's all written. And then he goes in 1965 to Romania, picks up the notebook and can compare Mm. the old memory with with the book. And I think he could not square the circle. Mm. And the book had actually taken him back to... The 18-year-old he was, the slightly cocky, Bertie Roosterish, And somehow that notebook... You know, when I first did this biography, he wouldn't even let me take it off the shelf. He said, oh, I'm working on that, you know. He showed me some of the drawings, but very carefully holding the rest of the pages tight. And so there was something about it that, to me anyway, it was the stumbling block. And if that last notebook had been lost, like all the others... I think it probably would have been very much easier to write. And it it was all there. It's not that it was a, a lie. I mean, he talks about the young girl he met. He talks about Rila Monastery. But also there's quite a lot of enjoying a round of golf with the British consul and stuff that, you know, didn't fit with all the stuff. Yeah. So there are these two two identities in a way. So why didn't he throw that book in the fire? Because he couldn't, because that was the talisman. Balasha, when she'd been given 15 minutes to pack by the authorities who were taking possession of her home, she'd bothered to put that notebook into her suitcase. He couldn't. But no, it was a tragedy. And so that book, 
The Broken Road. Colin and I edited it. This is Colin there Thubron. Was Colin Thubron. We did practically nothing. We sometimes put in a little linking passages, yeah. but we did absolute bare minimum. The only thing I remember Colin once saying, oh my gosh, there's this point here where it's not a complete sentence. Paddy, Paddy would have been horrified to have written um, not a complete sentence. And the sentence was, he's describing a flock of storks and they're, they're going overhead. He says, birds of passage, full stop, like the rest of us, full stop. No verb. <gasps> There's no verb. And I said, no, leave it. It's beautiful. It's we very paddy, just, isn't it? You know, it's very mm. paddy. Now, look, as we said, Time of Gifts was published later. Let's circle back to when he actually arrived in Constantinople. It was 1935, wasn't it? And he joined up as soon as war was declared in 1939. But what was he doing in those intervening four years? Well, he spent a few weeks in Constantinople, but actually the idea was to get to Greece because the author he most admired was Robert Byron. So he goes down to Athens by bus, by the way, met up with some friends. And then one evening he meets Princess Balasha Kontakuzen. She is a Romanian from a very grand family and they fall head over heels in love. She is 12 years older than him. She was wonderful for him. She was, in a way, the university years. She was incredibly well-read. There was much of Paddy that was probably fairly insufferable in some ways. <laughs> he would have been quite a show-off. He would have been very noisy, all that. She kind of smoothed the rough diamond a bit. And then when it starts to get chilly, they decide to move back to her estate at Baleni, in Romania, which is in northern Romania. And there you have to imagine an almost feudal estate run by her sister's husband. There were house servants. Every time Balasha went out into the estate, people would get down on one knee and kiss her hand. Wow. And they would literally, they spent the next four years there. He was learning Romanian. He read all the great French classics. They had a wonderful library. In the summers, they go to Greece. But I think things were gradually, I think perhaps he was feeling, I really have been here long enough. September 1939, mm. war breaks out. And this is the moment Paddy feels, right, I'm now going to prove myself. And he rushes back to war. I mean, almost as soon as war, as soon as he... And Balasha said, the moment I heard, she was driving and she was listening to the car radio. And she said, when I heard it on the radio, I knew this was it. I knew that you were going to join up and I was probably never going to see you again. Mm. Wow. In that moment. Yeah. So during that period, he's rounding out as more of an adult than, a, than a youngster. Yeah, he's learning absolutely. some languages. He's, he's learning becoming some languages. more sophisticated. Yeah. And then the war. And he, because he knows he still wants to write about this, all his notebooks were sent back in a big chest and he puts them, just before war starts, into Harrod's depository. <laughs> and then he joins up and it's pretty grim, the training and all that. He wanted to join the Irish Guards, but in fact it was the intelligence corps that picked him up because of the knowledge of languages. And he goes off to Greece, you know, with the knowledge of German, Romanian and a good smattering of Greek. So he's pretty useful to them, so looking pretty, pretty useful. useful. Yeah. And he joins the Greek military mission in the spring of 1941. Of course, the, the Germans start pouring into Yugoslavia and Greece, and he witnesses it firsthand. He's in the vanguard of the, um, of the retreating army, really. And that's how he slowly makes his way by boat down to Crete and there again sees the fall of Crete from Heraklion. Yes, which, of course, because the British retreated. The Crete, British retreated, they? yeah. 
and then he's evacuated to Cairo. It's extraordinary during that same period, Roald Dahl is um, a pilot in one of the last six, I think they were Spitfires, but they may not have been, and literally there were six planes covering the retreat of the army to Crete. Mm-hmm. They were I covering the, the evacuation ships, were they? Yes, exactly, yeah. and almost all of them died. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the situation was about as serious as it could be. About well, as serious as it could be. And that youthful, adventurous spirit that you talked about, Nick, and him, I mean, that's really... It's all getting very real, isn't it, at this point? It's getting pretty real. And then he goes to Cairo, volunteers to go back into occupied Crete to work with the resistance, with SOE, the Special Operations Executive. I mean, in a way, he found the perfect war because his last report, when he finishes training, his uh, commanding officer says, this man will never make a decent regimental officer. Perfectly true. But the war may find some use for his undoubted talents. Which it did. Which it did. He spends the next two years, three years, in occupied Crete. First of all, in the West, comes out at a certain point. And then he comes back in again with this plan to kidnap a general because he's already got an Italian general off the island after the Italian surrender. Um, and then he gets back to Cairo and thinks, well, all right, I got an Italian general off the island, but supposing we get a German general off the island. And not just any old German general, but the one who's in command of the Heraclean sector, who's an absolute monster who's been responsible for some really hideous reprisals against Greek civilians. Now, this is the instant that if you know nothing about Paddy, you, you may have heard about this. And, uh, well, tell me. I mean, it, it didn't go so well in many ways, did it? Well, it didn't go so well. The first thing is that the man they wanted to kidnap... This brutal general. The brutal General Muller. Paddy is going, and I think it's, it's January or... It's, the weather is appalling. They managed to drop Paddy into the dropping zone, which is like a tiny saucer in the mountains. It's nothing. And then there's a blizzard, and they fail to drop anybody else. So the plane that's dropping them has to go back to Bari, and it's seven weeks before they can try again. Seven weeks? I hadn't realised that. Okay. And in those seven weeks, General Muller is promoted yeah. and sent to Hanya. And replaced. And replaced. Paddy thought the whole operation might well be aborted at that stage because, you know, if you can't get the right general. But anyway, they decide to go for his replacement, who's a man called General Heinrich Kreiper, who's barely got his feet under the desk before he's kidnapped by the Anglo-Cretan team because by now they've joined him, a wonderful Cretan team, including Manolis Patarakis and Billy Moss, who's nominally the second-in-command but is a young, brilliant man and a fantastic driver, but actually has very little Greek. And it's daredevil stuff, isn't it? And it's daredevil stuff. And the book was written, um, Ill Met by Moonlight, is Billy Moss's book. Before the operation started, Paddy had chosen Billy Moss and had said, you'd better write the book because I'm not going to have the time to do this. So he did, and the book comes out, and that's what made the sort of huge success. And the film, of course. And the film with Dirk Bogard. And in fact, when Dirk Bogard is speaking... Greek in the film. It's actually Paddy behind a bush speaking Greek and <laughs> Bogard is going rhubarb, rhubarb, <laughs> But it's quite an amazing story to, to, to hand over, isn't it? I mean, the, the fact that he didn't want to tell that story. But I it had a very was, bad outcome, didn't it? It had, if you're talking about the reprisals. It was, yeah. Well, the reprisals 
are difficult. You have to see the resistance as a whole and what's happening at that time when the reprisals took place. So the actual kidnap takes place in late April, May. They get the general off the island. And then the reprisals happen in August. Now, that's quite a gap. Was it the original brutal general was reinstated? Is that right? No, it's not about that. It's about the fact that by August 1944, the Germans are pulling back out of Crete altogether. They've lost. So they're moving back west to Hanya, and they're going to hold that fortress. And retreat in the face of the enemy is one of the most difficult things you can do in war. And one way to make absolutely sure that it's going to go smoothly is to terrorise the population. Also, the Germans were beginning to get some desertions in their ranks. And one way to make sure that the German soldiers who were thinking about defecting were not treated as the Allies were at the beginning of the war, where they were sheltered by the Cretans, is to make every man into a looter and a killer. So they rampaged through the countryside as they were pulling back. Sounds like Ukraine, doesn't it? Very like. Mm. Yeah. That's so it's exactly it's a more complicated so you, picture. It's a much yeah. more complicated picture. And if you go to those villages in central Crete, every one of those monuments, and a tiny little village, and the names go on in great lists, they're all dated August 44. Mm-hmm. So the Germans, yes, pulled out of the hat a whole lot of stuff, and they did. They did. I think it's, I, you know, I'm not denying that they did say we destroyed these villages because they sheltered the kidnappers. But you have to put it within a context of what's happening. Did you ever discuss this with Paddy? Yes, I did. And I discussed it with Anthony, who had talked with many people who... Your husband. Seen, yeah, both, both sides of it. But at the same Wait, what time... What was Paddy's take on it, you know, with Paddy the benefit of time to think Paddy was always agonised, agonised by this. And I remember doing a walk through the middle of Crete, part of that walk, going through the Amari Valley... We were travelling with somebody who who was actually a member of the Greek Special Forces and he would come into the village and say, we've got these these people, they'd love to talk to you about what you remember. And of course, these old people were children and very often some of them remember taking a basket and their mother had given them the basket saying, you're to take it to the end of that field and then you're to come straight back and you're not to look behind you at all. So they remembered that, but I did remember one old man saying, you know, was it really worth it just to get one man to freedom? So there was an ambivalence. So as you go through Crete, there is on the one hand this enormous pride because it was a Cretan operation. Paddy was the nominal head of it. But if it hadn't been for the Cretans, for their networks, for their hospitality, this could not have been done. So they're hugely proud of that. And at the same time, ambivalent. The two go hand in hand. Was he decorated by the Greek government? He was, yes, and by the British government. And there's a Greek, I mean, George Sikundakis, that was a terrible story. George Sikundakis was one of the Cretan runners, the Cretan runners, Paddy's translation of George's memoirs. And George Sikundakis at the end of the war, having worked in the resistance all the way through, was put in prison by the Greeks as a deserter because his army papers weren't in order. Mm. The British had given him a medal for what he'd done to help the British. So all these things were very nuanced. All these things were very nuanced and you cannot just sort of, you know, it takes a long time to tell Understood. Them. It's interesting to hear you explain it and having talked mm. to Paddy about it because that's, yeah. that's always been a, a question, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think he was agonised by the reprisals. He was slightly agonised by the book. Um, not so much the book itself, but the way that it was 
reported and the feature articles that picked up on the book yeah. made it sound like it was Paddy and Billy Moss mm-hmm. swashbuckling and through a boy's own va- and a boy's yeah. own adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yeah. it was a very much colonial more approach to reporting the story. Yeah. Steph, did you have something you wanted to say? I was just going to say Paddy worked hard to get the Cretan Runner published in the UK. He did. To yes. get the proper story out. Yes. To get yes. the proper story out. Yeah. And to give and, and to George give, credit. And to give George credit. Yeah. Shall we move on to post-war? Because mm. his his writing career it took off, didn't it, after the war? About nineteen fifty. Bit late. Yes, years after. I mean, his first sort of commission was to. Um, there was a friend of his, a Greek friend, Costa Akilopoulos, who was a photographer, and he had been commissioned to take photographs of the West Indies. And he invited Paddy to come along, supposedly to do the captions, but obviously that being Paddy turned into a book, which was The Traveller's Tree, which is a very remarkable book, although, again, a difficult one. I don't know if it's still in print. Not his most memorable book. Not his most (laughs) memorable book, although there are very, very memorable chapters in it, like the one about Haiti and voodoo, which is probably the most remembered, partly because Ian Fleming, years later, took that chapter verbatim, obviously with Paddy's permission, and puts it into... Is it Doctor No? No, it's not no, Doctor no. no. No, I think it's... Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die. <laughs> for your <laughs> eyes only. Into one of his own into works. Into one of his <laughs> own works. And actually, you know, says, here, Bond, you'd better read this because you're going to be sent mm. here. Yeah. <laughs> so that chapter became very famous. But anyway, he came back and, again, he has terrible trouble for Paddy. Writing is very difficult. It really doesn't come easily. And this is when he goes to the monasteries to try and... He realises that actually he needs a kind of isolation. He's too much of a party animal, too much of a communicator. I should probably say that by now he's met the second great love of his life, Joan Ayres Munsell. And she has a tiny flat in London and they have a great time there. But, of course, he met her in Cairo during the war. And she she was very funny about it, actually. She said... Everyone was telling me about this wonderful man and how he was so good-looking and how he captured a German general. And she said, I was absolutely determined not to be dazzled. Yeah, you would be, wouldn't but, you? Um, yes, it's really off <laughs> It didn't actually work. <laughs> but they didn't marry for years, did they? They were together they a long time. They didn't. They didn't marry until 1968. But I think there were reasons for that, which was that she came from a very wealthy, grand family. And again, rather like Balasha, she was quite a bit older than him. And I think when you marry, particularly in those days, whether you like it or not, you're going to marry a family and that family's expectations. And he didn't want to marry Joan until he'd really made a name for himself. Mm-hmm. Everyone was already saying, oh, he's only with her for the money, you know, mm-hmm. and she looks after him, etc., etc." And he was acutely aware of it. But she was obviously a free thinker, just to get She was anyway. very much a free thinker. She was very much more unconventional, intellectual than her family approved of. So no. a lot of his later literary contacts came from her. Indeed. She was the one Absolutely. With... She was the one who introduced him to the Cyril Connollys. So the, the mainstream literary world that, that yes, I mean, leveraged that's... his career after that. Yes, in a way, a lot of her friends became his friends. That's certainly true. Morris Bowra, you know, the people he wouldn't necessarily have met otherwise, certainly. Uh, but he was very good, like, rather like a bubble in a champagne glass, he rose effortlessly to the top of any society he found himself in. <laughs> and I think that was partly because he did enjoy the high life. He was a bit of a snob. Nothing like his mother, by the way, who took snobbery to Olympic levels. Um, but he did like the grand life and he liked titles and all the rest of it. Rather reveled in all that. And he'd be the first to admit it. 
as you say, he kind of knew this about himself by the side yes. of it and knew that he had to take yep, himself yep. off into a fair degree of retreat to actually get yes, some work yes, done. Yes, exactly. And, you know, he succeeds. He's working hard. He writes two books, which I think appear in the same year, don't they? A Time to Keep Silence and then his sole novel, The Violins of Saint-Jacques, and they appear in 53. They do. And The Violins of Saint-Jacques, to me, is a template of what's happened to him because it's about... It's Actually, the, the narrator is a woman called Berthe, and um, she witnesses this beautiful little society on this volcanic island. And it's the night before a great ball. And somehow all of the society has come together and it's glittering and this it's in beautiful the Caribbean, in the Caribbean. Yeah. And then that night, the volcano goes off and everything is destroyed. And she is the only survivor. She's the only one who remembers. Wow, I never mm. thought of it like that. It's so this is in about 1902, is, isn't it? You love this book, don't you? Descendants yeah, of slaves and fading French yeah, aristocracy absolutely. and a whole way of life. Which and a whole just way of life which goes, mm. which vanishes just overnight. Like, just like parts of Europe. Yes. Just like yeah, what had happened yeah, to yeah. him. And he is describing mm. that grief that kind of survivor guilt. It is, it's much underrated. I haven't but read it, so it is still in print. So, so, yeah. It is, yeah. and it's, it's wonderful, and there's a little love story in it, an eloping couple. And wonderfully Baroque language. Un- you know, you yeah. learn all sorts of words you've never come across That's before. That's true, always so fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. There's, Why there's only a, the, sorry, go on in. I don't know if you know a song, a Bob Dylan song called Black Diamond Bay, that I've always wondered. It's the same story, but oh, kind of really? transplanted to the Cold yeah. War. It's, yeah. so it's an island in the Caribbean. So how does that novel go? Does it sell? Oh, it's still in print. It was a huge success. And I it think was partly because obviously... It became an opera. Early 50s, you know, pretty grey time in Britain. Still got mm. rationing. And this colourful, exotic... Glamorous. Romantic story bursts on the scene. I mean, Joan had actually... I think she wrote... Yes, Paddy's laid an egg, she said. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the only egg. It it's the only egg. everything. It's such a contrast to A Time to Keep Silence, which is This is it, monastery. I think. Well, yes, yes. Well, in the actually, same year. So yeah, yes. in the same year. But the monasteries, that was actually a series of articles. It's four articles that he wrote for the Cornhill magazine. But to me, the, the most important are the first two, Saint-Vendry and Saint-Jean-de-Solemme. And his stays in both of those, where he goes through a mental journey, which I think is beautifully described. Mm-hmm. He suddenly comes to really respect and understand what these people who've closed themselves off from life are doing. Mm-hmm. And at first, he's, he's, he feels like he's in a tomb, he can't sleep, um, he finishes the bottle of Calvados that he'd managed to smuggle in, and he thinks, what are these guys doing? They look like ghosts, you know, but he just doesn't get it. And then he begins to talk to the monks and listen to their conversation and see the life. The rest of his life, he, he did that when he needed to write, didn't he? He did. He retreated. Yep. And you said that his house in, in Greece was... It's a monastery. Yes. But this formula works, doesn't it? Because he goes on to write two more significant travel books mm. just in the next handful of years. So Marnie and Marnie then... in 1958, Yes. And And Rumelie, which took an awful... He was going to write a whole series of books on Greece, but in fact only came out with those ones. He has a lot of trouble writing about things he really cares about, like Greece. I I think that seems like a good place to to close that discussion. It it was so, so fun. I learned loads. Thank you so much. And I should just say that Lee Fermi, he died, I think, in England. He was 96, wasn't he, in June 2011. Thank you both very much. Well, thanks, everyone. A fantastic discussion. Thank you so Just much. remind me the names of your own books. Patrick Lee Firma, An Adventure. 
and mine is walking the woods and the water in Patrick Lee Farmore's footsteps from the Hook of Holland to the Golden Horn. Slightly Foxed is a small publishing house in East London. It was founded in 2004 by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood, and the team began publishing a quarterly magazine for literary nonconformists all about lost and forgotten books. The contributors are unusual. Some are distinguished writers, journalists or academics. Others, though, come from very different walks of life. 18 years on now, and the Fox team still love finding new readers. The magazine is posted out four times a year to more than 60 countries, and every year they also reissue out-of-print books they think deserve to find new readers. The annual subscription to the quarterly magazine is very reasonably priced. It's £48 a year in the UK and Ireland, and only £56 worldwide. Even better, your subscription gives you free access to the digital archive of all the back issues, and that's over a thousand articles to explore. You can sign up for a subscription at foxquarterly.com, or if you'd rather talk to a real person, give the London office a ring on 020 7033 0258. Thank you. So, book recommendations now. Uh, Nick, you need to run, so I'm going to start with you. (laughs) I'm going to continue the travel theme and the John Murray theme because through a sort of slightly circuitous way, I've ended up being a series editor for John Murray's. The John Murray links just keep on coming with slightly (laughs) thoughts, don't they? But okay. (laughs) Well, they were actually, I originally pitched my idea for this book that I wanted to write about the journey to John Murray and, and they, they said no. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite pleasing. So then though, I was published it? by Nicholas Breeley that were then subsequently bought by John Murray, Very which neat. is perfect. And so the book I would recommend is actually one that we have coming out. So a bit of a plug. Of course. But it's one I've really fallen in love with. It's called In a Land Far From Home by a Bengali, an Indian Bengali writer called Syed Mushtaba Ali who is very well known in Bengal, much less so to English language readers. And it's translated by Naziz Afroz. And it is about a young man, kind of Paddy-like, setting out from Calcutta and taking up a teaching post in Kabul in the 1920s. And the first part of the book is kind of almost played for laughs. It's quite light. It's the experiences of quite a kind of slight literary fellow, educated chap who yeah. goes to kind of do this job and finds himself in a land of, as he sees it, giant men with beards and guns, <laughs> which is obviously how Afghans are often portrayed by Western writers. But because he's not Western, he has a completely different take. He's travelling in a time of, of agitation for independence in India. He's going to free independent Afghanistan. So immediately he has that completely different perspective yeah. and he kind of finds himself looking over his shoulder when people say things that sound seditious before realising, oh, there's no sedition here because yeah. we're not British controlled. And then he kind of diverges into Afghan history and makes friends with people from foreign diplomats to his Afghan manservant who kind of looks after him. And then there is a, we've been talking about historical echoes. He finds himself in the middle of a brutal war and siege as the westernizing monarch of the time is overthrown by an uprising from conservative mullahs in the mountains. Kabul is under siege. There's a panicked evacuation from Kabul airport, which just sent shivers down my spine with the events of last year. Fascinating parallel. And all the, the British, the French, the Russians are all flown out. 
the Indians, who were meant to be subject to the British Empire, are abandoned. So he finds himself in this gruelling winter, slowly starving to death, Another being looked parallel. after by this very loyal Afghan friend who is was his servant, and eventually manages, without spoiling anything, obviously he does get out, but he lives through this kind of completely traumatic siege. And this book was recommended by an author called Taran Khan, who won the Stanford Dolman Award last year, I think, for a book called Shadow City. The subtitle is One A Woman Walks Kabul, and she has also seen the fall in modern times. Nick, that's a great book recommendation. I'm going to let you go, because I know you've got, a, you've got a train to catch, haven't you? So thanks again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Gail. Yes, well, I'm going to same continent, but a bit further east. I haven't finished the book, but I'm absolutely loving it. It's called The House on the Davina by Eugenie Fraser. It was published in 1984. She had a Russian father who came from Archangel, family of timber and flax merchants. And in the 1880s, he was sent to Dundee for a couple of years to learn the business there. And there he met his future wife, who was, of course, Scottish. They married and they went back to Archangel. And Eugenie was born in 1905. And this is an account of her childhood. And it is absolutely magical. Archangel, before the revolution, before the war. In winter, they go everywhere by sledge, sometimes pulled by reindeers. All the festivals of the Russian Orthodox Church, there are things that you eat and things that you do, and there's a ritual. And she paints this wonderful picture of this enormous house full of multiple generations. And I've now, in the book, got to 1914. And, of course, I know that it's just going to go, it's going to be awful. I'm going to go on reading it because, actually, I think we'd like to reissue it as a Slightly Fox edition if we can. She obviously survives, but I don't know who else survives. So she eventually goes back to Scotland in 1920, and I think she has a narrow escape meets her future husband and they marry and she then spends a lot of her life in India which she writes about in a book called The House on the Hoogly and then after her husband dies she's back in Scotland and writes a third book called The Divina Remains but she devoted her last years to promoting friendship between Soviet Russia and Scotland clearly a remarkable woman yeah Ended up being Scottish, but actually always felt she had a Russian soul. There's a beautiful description in one bit where they repolish the parquet floors and they employ two men who tie polish and dusters to their feet and they skate. They skate round these rooms. <laughs> Wonderful picture. I got a little ballet. Yeah. The name is, again? The House by the Divina. Fantastic. Artemis. Well, this is a book I'm still reading and it's very recent. It's by Cal Flynn and it's called Islands of Abandonment. Nature in the Post-Human Landscape. This is a book about the areas of the landscape that have been destroyed by mankind, usually within the last 200 years of industrialization and left as complete wastelands. She writes absolutely beautifully. And what is extraordinary is how nature bounces back, even in the most poisoned parts of these of there's a river in New Jersey, which is now just completely abandoned with old hulks of ships. There are little fish swimming in that. There's another place where they buried all sorts of terrifying toxic gases in one area of the Somme after the First World War. They buried all the mustard gas and all this hideous stuff. And there are plants growing there too. She goes to Chernobyl. She goes to extraordinary places, the islands in Scotland, places where nature has come back and are actually now sites of incredible scientific interest.
So this is an not only a very timely book, it's terrifying to read. It is also so full of hope. Yeah, fascinating. So that is Cal Flynn, Islands of Abandonment. Steph. I've mentioned my book group once or twice yes. on the podcast. <laughs> And we quite often like to have a theme to the books that we're reading. Recently, we've done the Spanish Civil War, yes. which was wonderful. Oh, well, it wasn't. but uh, <laughs> And we decided to do Anglo-Irish writers mm. and wanted to read a couple of books on the big house phenomena, which, yeah. you know, particularly Irish phenomenon. So we read William Trevor's Fools of Fortune, which is beautiful sad it begins with a horrendous act of violence that echoes through the ages there is a house fire in 1918 a young boy is orphaned and he moves to dublin well his father dies his mother is still alive but um she becomes an alcoholic and it's the train of events that this sets off it goes right through to 1983 He's a beautiful writer. There is so much going on yeah. underneath. We followed it with um, Elizabeth Bowen's The Last September, which mm. is another book set in a big house. And she's not quite as clear. She's more lyrical. And several people in our group found her slightly more difficult. But William Trevor, I think, Fools of Fortune, many people felt it was his greatest novel. Obviously, he's well known for short stories, yeah. but... I think he wrote about eight novels, and this is outstanding. Wonderful. Every time you talk about your book group, I get book group envy. <laughs> because they always do such interesting <laughs> themes and dig up try. Some. You really do this. <laughs> How many book there group I ever hear about? There are... There are two book groups, for starters. Oh. One is serious and... One is, not, yes, mm. one is not so serious. Uh, <laughs> so she only ever brings us the serious recommendations. Is that yes. what we're discovering? <laughs> uh, we're going to get her into terrible trouble if we say any more. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to draw a veil because we don't we don't want to embarrass guests on the podcast, so we're just going to leave it at that. Uh, now, look, before I wrap up this podcast, I want to ask Artemis about the Lee Firmer House in Cardamele. You've talked about it during the discussion. It's still there, isn't it? And this is a very high-end version of our kind of book lovers' day out <laughs> in the sense that you can, if you have very deep pockets, rent the house, can't you? Uh, you can. Um, there also, James Hennage organises um, a Benaki Festival there. The house was left by Paddy and Joan to the Benaki Museum. Now, this was a house that was built in the late 60s. There wasn't electricity in the Marnie then, so this house was built with biblical tools on a promontory in between two little bays. There are great terraces with sort of pebble mosaics, beautiful rooms. It feels like a monastery. There's a sort of L-shaped gallery that feels like two sides of a cloister. The house has been restored so beautifully. Paddy and Joan lived a fairly Spartan life. There was no central heating. They just had little electric fires. Every light, you got a slight electric shock when you turned it on. <laughs> Everything had to be redone. You can't see any of it. Well, there's a good website, and isn't there? Have, People would like to yes. see it. You can see so images the, of it. So you can see what they've done on the Benaki Museum website, where also, if you happen to be in the money, the middle prong of the Peloponnese, you can buy a ticket to see round the house. It costs all of five euros, and the you buy that electronically. Option. So that's one thing. If you're feeling slightly richer, you can get on the Aria Hotels website. Now, Aria Hotels have the house for three months of the year, 
I went there last September. It's incredibly comfortable, still with what I think Paddy would call sumptuous austerity. <laughs> so I highly recommend that. A very lovely place. I think we're about done. Thanks again to Artemis for being with us. It's such a joy. If you'd like to check the name of a book or a writer that we've mentioned, you'll find them all listed in the episode show notes. We'll put the link to the Lee Firmer House in there as well. You'll find all those references on the podcast app as well on the show notes if you uh, head to the podcast page on the website, foxquarterly.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and recommend us wherever you've been listening. We read all your comments and reviews. We're always glad to receive feedback, good or bad. We'll be back with another quarterly podcast on October the 15th. In the meantime, do not miss the next quarterly magazine. That will be published on the 1st of September. As always, thanks for joining us on another literary trek off the beaten track.